You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. How are we this morning? Oh, Christmas time. Don't you love it? Some of it. We've kind of been a little bit conservative this year on our... We, we haven't done many lights outside. We've only got five decorated Christmas trees around our house of sorts. We have uh, two outside and three inside. Yeah, why not? Man, I'd have an evergreen yard if I could, and I'd have snow falling like crazy. Don't knock it till you try a white Christmas. It is awesome. It is incredible having fun. Hey, I, I get to play dad on our Christmas kind of thing, night before Christmas. I don't know where Kerry went, but I just want to know if I get an ugly sweater. Where are you, Kerry? Do I get an ugly sweater? Make it a large because Christmas has already come with, yeah. That'll be fun. It'll be great. Bring some friends. I want to encourage you guys, listen, um, tonight is our last kind of PM for the year, and next year we're launching something brand new at a vision, and you'll hear about that as the year rolls on. But tonight is the last uh, Sunday PM, and the youth are actually taking it over. Our up-and-coming worship team for the youth and our youth pastors are doing it. And look, come on, Christmas season, come out tonight at 6 o'clock and encourage our youth. You know, you could go, oh, they're, they're the next generation. They are not, they're the now generation. You know, we want to encourage them now. Uh, the majority of people come to faith long before they reach their 20s. But it's amazing how many drop out after they get in their 20s. So come and encourage them. We want these guys not to be just a flash in the pan. We want them to go for the long haul. Now, they're not the generation to come. They're the generation now. So come on, make an effort tonight, 6 o'clock at the ministry center, to encourage our young people. They're going to be doing the worship, the word, everything. Somebody might be doing an offering message. Who's doing that? Who? Jed from Northwest. Oh, pressure's on, boy. Better get that one going. Jed, another Chapman in the saddle. Lord have mercy, they're taking over. So, hey guys, come tonight, it'll be good. It'll be incredible, and it'll be fun to watch these guys that are coming up. I think in our youth, we've got about three drummers up and coming, and singers, and other things, and I think Ellen's leading the worship, which is always powerful. So, come along and do that. See what's in store for us as we progress forward future as a church. Hey, it's good to be home. Thanks for praying for us. We had a fruitful time of ministry at I'll say fruitful and interesting time ministry. It's always interesting when you walk into situations. But, you know, in spite of difficulties, the church is doing well up there, which is always good to see. Um, You know, the one thing that will prevail until Jesus comes is the church. He said, I'll build my church. It's not going to fail. And it has gone through some dark periods, but she still prevails, which is awesome. So thanks for praying. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's just a good thing. This year is a time that's filled with all kinds of expectations. You know, I'm expecting Christmas parties. Thank God most of them are gone and finished. Uh, no, don't. Oh, man, it's just they're loud. They're fat-filling. They're... And I'm expecting to eat a lot or have eaten a lot. And I'm expecting it to be crazy busy. Aren't you? Yeah, a few of you. I'm expecting presents. Oh, come on. All of you, are you just trying to be humble? Uh, if you're not expecting presents, go out there to Project Blessing and give all your money to Project Blessing. You don't need any presents. Anyway, I'm expecting all of that. This is the season. 
So why don't we pray as we get ready for the word? Because last week uh, we began the Advent season with a series called Unexpected. And I think Pastor Simeon just did so well kicking that off with the Unexpected King. Well done, mate. Did a good job. Uh, and Pastor Darren's preaching over at Northwest. Um, mate, you got me thinking. I was walking at the lake. I saw two of our young people down there on a park bench, arms around each other. They turned red when I yelled at them. <laughs> like she's, she's ducking for cover now. He's fortunate he's out at kids. But I couldn't hear what they said. I was, I was listening to Simo preach. So it's awesome. You made me think about my expectations around Christmas uh, and what Jesus means at this time of year. Why don't we pray for a minute? Father, we want to thank you for this amazing word. It's a word of faith. But it's also a word of truth. And it just adjusts us when we need to get adjusted. And it sets us on a path where things will turn out right. I want to thank you that this word brings faith, it brings healing, it brings encouragement, and it brings maturity. God, we don't want to just nibble around the edges like a cookie. We want to just dig in and eat some meat today. We pray also for Pastor Darren over at Northwest. God, just release him with anointing to preach a word with power and life. We pray for every life-giving church in the city and across this nation today that stands and proclaims your word, helping people to see and to know you even better. God, we pray life across this city and across this nation. And thank you that life comes through this word. Grace is released as this word goes forth. We pray for ourselves. We want to have ears to hear what the Spirit's saying and not just be hearers. We want to be doers of this word. So we position ourselves. We're ready. We're buckled in. We're ready to be kind of taken on a quick ride, but also changed. And we bless you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Come on, this season, the Advent season, reminds us of the coming Messiah King. That's what you heard last week. And all of the expectations that come with this. And it all began right from the beginning at his birth. Everything was unexpected. Where he was born, who he was born to. Imagine being born in a stable in a poor city by a little teenager and a de facto dad. All of that was unexpected. Like, hang on, hang on. This is the king. It must have shocked them when the angels rocked up and goes, bang, bang, there's the king. And they're all looking around at the sheep and smelling the dung and all kind of things going on. They're going, where? Where is he? And it tracks all the way from his birth to his death. Everything's just totally unexpected, like he was betrayed by one of his team. I mean, that only happened in Roman empires, like with Julius Caesar. He had a mock trial. He was executed as a criminal. And even the place where he died, it was, just so, it, was, it was a garbage dump on the edge of the city. It's just so unexpected for a king. But nothing, listen, nothing seemed more unexpected than the way he lived. Wasn't just his death, wasn't just his birth, but his life. Hey, we just, what is this? What? It, it just wasn't the way it should have been. The way he lived. You know, it just wasn't that he was born a peasant and he died a criminal. He, he just didn't live the way everybody expected him to live. Come on, Jesus, you're not fitting the mold. Get in your box. I remember 1982, 83, something like that over at Wyala. I preached on a Sunday night at our church. Young guy who had the gift of prophecy walks up to me, school teacher. And he says, Keith, I love your teaching. I love your preaching. You just got so much richness in the Word of God. And that's always been a strength I've had from the very beginning since I got born again. I don't know why I had it. It just kind of 
I'd never had a bottle. It just kind of came on me. And I thought, awesome, love your encouragement. But then he said, but I got one problem. I thought, there's always a but in there. There's always that three-letter word you wish they didn't just end the sentence before you get there. He goes, but I got a problem. And I said, what's that, Andy? He said, you got God in a box, and he doesn't fit. That was a, that was a dawning moment for me. That with all the theology and all the Bible study and five years of seminary, didn't release God from the box. It was great. Gives great foundation. Helps me to grow in the Word. But I still had God in this box. I wonder what box you've got Him in this Christmas. Hmm. Anyway, just a side note. Because Jesus didn't live as everybody expected as the King or the Messiah who came to deliver His people. Now, don't go quiet on me. It is going to be cutting, but don't go quiet. Or I'll preach louder and harder and longer. If you go loud, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll slow down and I'll quit early. Anyway. And you go, Keith, you're lying. That's all right. I'm forgiven. So even though it was predicted, people still question this. And yet the prophet Isaiah, 400 years, tried to tell the people what to expect. He gave them a preview they didn't need to miss. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, God speaks through a prophet and says, Hey, get ready. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a preview already for the next, uh, what are they called? Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, I was, yeah, I know. Darren would be cheering. You might not like it, but Darren would be cheering. This guy knows every line in every movie from, since he was five years old. Anyway, Isaiah gives him a preview and says, don't miss this. And in, in many chapters, but in chapter 52, really there shouldn't be a dissection between now and chapter 53. You might know chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. Well, this kind of leads to that. And in verse 13, Isaiah writes, or God speaks to the prophet and says, see my servant. Pause. That should have given them a clue right there about what his his nature was going to be like. Even God calls him a servant. Hang on, he's a king. He's the servant king. He said, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up highly and exalted. There you go, he's on a throne. Not until he was on a, on a cross. Because what Isaiah is talking about here is that after the cross, he will be raised and seated next to the Father. They didn't get it. Verse 14. This one should tell you. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. I don't know if you saw the passion of the Christ years ago. I mean, it was pretty rough. I don't think it really showed everything. Isaiah said that they beat him so severely you couldn't recognize him as a man. He's talking about his beating and his crucifixion. And he's telling them ahead of time, hundreds of years, this is what's coming. But, verse 15, so he was crucified, so this will happen. So will he sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. What an amazing text. 
Isaiah is giving a preview that's got two aspects about the Messiah. And here's the first one. He will come as a servant. That's what God calls him. My servant. And it will ultimately be played out in his persecution and on a cross where he dies. But secondly, he will sprinkle. Did you know that word sprinkle is used throughout the Old Testament in ceremonies of cleansing and washing something from its sin? What's he saying here? He will go through that so that nations will be cleansed. Many nations. The Messiah will bring salvation to the peoples of the earth. Every Jew stops and goes, whoa, hang on a minute. We thought the Messiah was for Israel only. He goes, I got good news for you. Not just for you. But we don't expect that. Of course you don't. But God's plan for redemption is for the nations, not for one nation. For the peoples of the earth. Sometimes we stop and go, God is on our side, but not their side. The people outside. I want to tell you, he doesn't love any one of us in here any more than he loves the dirtiest person out in this city. What causes us to think? Oh, but I'm his favorite child. Of course you are. That's grace. But so are they favorite if they'll come under his grace. Don't miss that. So, even though Isaiah and a lot of other scriptures and the Psalms and so forth, they predicted the Messiah's coming and his purpose, their expectations. When he came, their expectations revealed. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. And I often wonder if that happens to us today. It it, it could be that we've got our own expectations how Jesus should act. Jesus, get in my box. You don't belong out there. You belong in here, the box that I have made for you. He doesn't do what we expect to do and we get disappointed with him. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have been disappointed with God? Anytime. Yeah. I've I, I got to admit, there are times when I look up to heaven and I ask him, I say, do you really know what's going on down here? You said you would build your church and it's not happening like I expect it to. I feel like sometimes I'm Gideon and the army is ever decreasing. What do you mean build your church? I get disappointed with him. If I were you, I'd do it a different way. It's a good thing he's not me. Because even if he did it my way, it wouldn't last. So, you can track to the Gospels and, man, you guys are quiet. I'm not even getting heavy yet. You know the old saying in Alabama, if you rub the dog the wrong way, turn the dog around. So get ready to get turned around. It's all right. I haven't been here for a while. I get to rub the dog. As they spell in Alabama, D-A-W-G, dog. Just like coffee. I heard you last week. I heard that on the... How many times did you say, come on, you guys come alive like you've had your coffee or something like that? Coffee's good. The life of the... Flesh is in the coffee? Okay. So, if you track through the Gospels, you're going to see people not getting it. The way Jesus lived. It, it was totally unexpected to them. It's like, a servant like this? Are you kidding? Because coming as a king meant he should have been served. Instead of entering Jerusalem on a chariot, he came in riding a donkey and a borrowed one at that. 
Coming as a religious leader meant people should have been waiting on him hand and foot as the religious leaders of the day were. Everywhere a rabbi went, somebody carried his bags, they met his every needs, they did everything that he needed, and he expected that. And Jesus just didn't act like that. Never once do you find him saying to the disciples, carry my bags. Now, I know people do that because they do that for me when I go places to preach. They just do it out of honor. And I'm not knocking honor. But when I expect them to do it because I am the pastor, something's wrong. Instead, Jesus comes and he serves the poor, the down and out, the sinful, the outcast. When's the last time you carried something for a sinful person? Hmm. Interesting. Because all of this is totally unexpected. People who were closest to Jesus were thrown by the truth. He's a servant. Lord have mercy. And the first one you're going to see is his cousin, J.B., John the Baptist. John the Baptist had expectations about Jesus that caused him to doubt. And he's even a prophet, and he doubted. And this guy recognized Jesus. He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows he's come here to do away with sin. But how he was going to do it through him, which is interesting. John finds himself in prison. He's about to be executed. And maybe John is kind of expecting Jesus to raise up an army, storm Herod's jail, and set him free and overthrow Herod. Hey, come on, cuz. You're the king, and your kingdom is here. Why don't you do something about this? Maybe John is struggling with the way Jesus is serving instead of ruling. He's ministering instead of being ministered to. And John's just going, what's that about? And you can almost hear John the Baptist saying, this is not quite what I expected. And so when you get to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, John says it. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, I heard about him. He's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and he's healing sick and he's touching people who have leprosy. What's that? You're a king. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, watch the wording, or should we expect another, someone else? You know what happens today? Even today, when Jesus doesn't appear to be doing what is expected of him, people start thinking, are you really who you say you are? Or should I look for somebody else or something else? Maybe I'll go look for another counselor when I need encouragement. There might possibly be someone who'll take care of my problems and beat up all my enemies because they're not going away. Or perhaps there's someone who will lead me down an easier road because this one's pretty tough. Is there another healer out there? Hmm. John the Baptist just struggled with that. Before you get too tough on him, maybe we do. It doesn't work out our way. I thought being a Christian was meant to be favored and prosperous and blessed. That's where Jesus said, blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say blessed are the rich. That doesn't mean he doesn't like rich people. He's just saying, I'm going to blow away your perception that riches equal blessing. That God loves you because you're rich. That God, that's God's favor on your world. Might be, might not be. So you go a bit further into the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem for the last time. They don't realize that. They think, this is it. Come on, take over time. And they're all headed there. And so two of his closest friends go for a... They, they, they make a play for power. 
come on, his kingdom's coming. We're going for it. And even though I told him a number of times, I mean, just a day or two earlier, he said, listen, it's not going to be what you expect. I'm actually going to get killed when we go to Jerusalem. Don't talk like that. Somebody, please, get him a donkey. Somehow they still had this perception that Jesus is about to inaugurate some kind of powerful political kingdom that's going to overthrow Rome and Herod. And two of his closest disciples, brothers, James and John. Isn't it interesting? Used to be a triad, James, John and Peter. I mean, it's only days before they were up on the mountain with him and they saw him in his glory. The three of them. Only the three of them went into the room where he raised a dead girl. Only the three of them got to hear and see things that the other nine didn't. James and John are going, it's close. Let's shove Peter out of, out of the way. We know how loudmouth Peter is and he'll jump first. Let's get in there before Peter gets in. And so they make a request. They go, hey, we expected this. And so you get to Matthew twenty twenty. And it says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Pause for a minute. You know, I I think God's got a sense of humor that he allowed that to be put in the Bible for the rest of history. That the sons of thunder go and ask for her, her little sons, Jimmy and Johnny. Would you help little Jimmy and Johnny so they could have favored positions of power when you get into Jerusalem? Verse 21, Jesus said, What is it you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? In Jesus' mind, you know the cup he's talking about. The cup of crucifixion. The cup of sacrifice. The cup of giving everything you have and not having anything left. And in their minds, they're going... Yeah, overthrow, power, position, throne, palace. Sure, we can drink that cup. We're good for that. We got capacity. We're robust. And Jesus said to them in verse 23, Yeah, you, you will indeed drink from my cup. James, the first Christian martyr in history. He drank the cup. John persecuted his whole life. Boiled in oil and exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Do you really want to sit on those thrones? Yeah, you're going to drink this cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, oh, this is good. This is good. This is the greatest team meeting you could be a part of. I would love to be the leader of that team meeting. Just going, I've been waiting for this for three years. When they heard it, They were indignant with the two brothers. Why were they indignant? Probably because they didn't get in first. We thought Peter was going to jump in and they'd do it. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority. See the words over twice. He says it. This is about positioning for power. And he said, you know about this. James and John fully understood what they were asking. We want authority over all of them and everybody else. We want to be first. We want to be on the top of the ladder when it happens. When it all goes down, we're there right beside you. Gene Wilkes said it so good. 
James and John understood that in any kingdom, the places closest to the king had to have more power and prestige attached to them. That's how the Romans did it. That, that is how the leadership of Israel did it. Positions near the top are where you want to be when the king comes to power. This worldview, however, breeds competition rather than cooperation. How much of that gets into the church? This is the church in making. And they've already got a worldview that's anti-kingdom. They still expected their kingdom to be like the others. Kind of reeks back all the way to the book of Judges. Where they're coming out of a period where they're ruled by judges. And what do they start saying? Give us a king to be like everyone else. So God complies. Yeah, okay, I'll give you a king. What they didn't know is he already had chosen a king. But they chose the wrong king. They looked for somebody who had all the physical attributes. Oh yeah, he's got the goods. Look at his resume. Look at him physically. Listen to him talk. Whereas God had a little shepherd boy out playing a flute to sheep. Who was the leader towards the Messiah. And a type of the Messiah. But they didn't get it. Give us a kingdom like the others. This is a request about a position and power over other people. Even in the kingdom of God. It's about control over people. And they were willing to put themselves ahead of others to get that. My Lord. This is competition in the kingdom at its highest. You know, over the years, Janet and I have had a few couples come to our church. I think about three. And within a short period of time, they wanted to have coffee with us. We go, yeah, okay, let's have coffee. But then as we sat down to have coffee, they just subtly informed us that wherever they had been, they had always been close confidants in position next to the senior ministers. Not on staff. And, and every church they went to, they were like this. And, and all of a sudden, we just felt uneasy about this. We just kind of picked up that this is coming out of pride and positioning. And so we were cautious. We just went, well, that's nice. Didn't say anything else. It just didn't happen here. Needless to say, those couples never hung around and learned how to serve. I guess they found somewhere where they got that position. And it's sad to say that this kind of thing happens even in the church. Christian ministries. I've actually been in the green room. Oh, gosh, you ought to see it. It's a circus sometimes. I have been in the green room. At, at conferences and meetings where a prominent world-class speaker is at. And, and Janet and I are at dinner. And we have watched people trying to position themselves as close to the person as possible. And if they get that position, all they talk about is them. My ministry, my church, my this, my that. I'm going to speak. And I'm going, golly, what is that? And I'm sure Jesus would say the same to us today as he said in verse 26. Not so with you. You are not meant to be like everyone else. Instead, whoever, watch this, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Oh, he doesn't stop there. He keeps going down the ladder because if you want to be at the top of the ladder, you've got to be at the bottom and first be a slave. Whoa. This is totally upside down because greatness is not found in position and power. It's found in character. Mm -hmm. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is made up of people who are great because they take the place of a servant, diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon from. Who ever told deacons that they held positions of power? Who ever told deacons that they're committees to rule the church? 
Whoever told deacons that they have authority? I'm sorry, but Jesus instituted them as servants. The word diakonos means servant, minister. Somebody who willingly puts themselves, not by force, they say, hey, yep, I'm here to serve. That's what I'm here for. I don't expect any power or prominence. I'm here to serve. But even though he said that, that wasn't enough. He said, you want to be great? Be like that. But he said, you want to be first? You want to be at the top of the ladder? Having an exalted position in the kingdom happens as you take the lowest place and you bind yourself to others and you serve them out of humility. That's the highest you can do. Interesting. Being first in the kingdom is measured by meeting the needs of others, especially menial tasks. Hmm. Stay with me. Not only are we called to be a servant, we're told to take the lowest servant position called, a, in English it's a bond slave. Who said slavery is dead? Slavery is not dead. We're all slaves. I'm not a slave to fear, but I am a slave to serve. Because he now uses a different word than diakonos. He uses the word doulos. Which literally means a person who is the property of another, even against their will. Thank God it's not against their will. It's interesting when you get to John 13, after Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, he doesn't use the word diakonos, he uses the word doulos. You need to treat each other like you are a doulos, a bond slave. The first one who's willing to get down and wash feet. Because in a household, you had paid servants and recognized servants, but then you had the bond slave. The bond slave was the one that had the lowest task. They cleaned the outhouses. They emptied the buckets and the pails from under the bed that Peter talks about. The ignoble things in a household. They are the ones who would first off, when you walked in, would be down on the floor to wash your feet no matter what you've walked through. And they're there because they're owned. Jesus said, you go there because you belong to me. And you're part of my kingdom. And he goes on to say in verse 28, just as the Son of Man. Just like I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Hey, I came down to do this. I didn't come down to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is just this unexpected example. Hey, come on. But again, Jesus drives home his purpose, and in doing so, he just blows away their perceptions and their expectations. Jesus is not asking his followers or us to do something or to be somebody he wouldn't do or be. He's not saying, you bunch of plebs, get out there and do it. Just as I did. I gave my life in service for others. You give your life. This is totally different than being somebody who is, you know, volunteer is a great word, and I love our volunteers, but surely there is a higher word than volunteer. I mean, love you volunteers, but I don't think volunteer does justice to you. I think servant does. You're not here to help. You're here to serve. You're not here to meet a need. You're here to give your life for others. I'm just saying. But I don't know about you. You have to admit that this is just jolly difficult. You know, how in the world do you 
take this on. I mean, I, need, I don't know about you, but I need help to be this kind of servant because it goes against everything in my upbringing and my culture. I mean, I come from the land of be the best. You're the best. Get on top of the ladder and doesn't matter who you walk on getting there. Make people serve you at your beck and call. I mean, I come from the land that's like that. It's always about be the best. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Sometime later, Peter would remember this day. And he would write in his letter, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want the stiff arm of God, you could pick the toughest rugby player who just won the World Cup and let him, let him stiff arm you in the face. That's nothing compared to God stiff arming you. You think that hurts your nose? Wait till you get proud in front of God. Yet at the same time, I believe there's a grace. I talked about this earlier. There's a grace that enables us to be this kind of person. Because I can't do it in my own strength. I can't even, I've got a pretty strong will. I can't even do it with that. I, I just kind of have to cry out to God and say, if I'm going to be like you, Jesus, this, this life is so countercultural. I, I need your grace. Because the whole culture is screaming at me not to do this. Sometimes even the church culture. I'm sad to say. So John the Baptist, James and John, they're all struggling with this unexpected servant. Let's track just a few days later than this. It's the last night. They have supper. They celebrate the Passover. It's the final hours before Jesus is crucified. And you'd think, because he says it again, they've got it now. Jesus does something that totally enforces his life's purpose. He does the unexpected in John chapter 13 verse 3. He pushes back from the table. I can imagine Jesus. It's interesting. You can often look at some pictures of the Last Supper, and there's Jesus at the head, and there's the twelve all cascading down. From John at the top, Peter and whoever else, cascading down to poor old Simon the Zealot or whoever. It's not that way. Other pictures you'll see Jesus is dead set in the middle of the table. He comes in and he gets ready to eat and things don't happen as they should. Not even hospitality. He pushes back from the table. Verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Listen to me. This kind of serving comes out of a place of security, total security. You've got to know who you are and what you're here for. Listen. There was no insecurity in Jesus at that moment even what he was about to do. Jesus was about to take the place of the doulos. Not even the diakonos, but the doulos, the slave. So he gets up from the meal, takes off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, now you've got to understand, Simon's probably already agitated. Because James and John got in ahead of him. Left him out of the triad. Little snots, you wait till I get him alone. So he's agitated. Jesus comes to wash his feet. Can you imagine the anger that's boiling inside of him? Jesus comes to wash his feet. Boom, he repels. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, Peter, you don't have revelation on this right now yet. You'll understand one day. No. Peter has this habit of saying no to God. If you ever hang around Peter, you better have a lightning rod with you. No. 
You're never going to wash. He says two things that are horrible. No and never. You're never going to do that to me. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What's taking place here might have caught all, all the disciples. You know, the moment Jesus pushes back from the table, takes his clothes off, he's down to his underwear. He wraps a towel around and he starts washing feet. They're all sitting there gobsmacked. I don't believe this. He's doing that. They're speechless. But the one who protests vehemently, the only one that says anything is typical Peter. No, this is totally unexpected. And he's worried and concerned about Jesus' image. What are they going to think about you? How can we go into Jerusalem and take over with you down there naked, washing feet? But he wasn't concerned enough to wash Jesus' feet, was he? Or the other disciples. He's only concerned about image, not service. Matter of fact, none of them were concerned enough to wash Jesus' feet. The moment they walked into that house, someone should have got down and washed their feet. You don't go and sit at the meal table without your feet being washed. Somebody just totally neglected it. So Jesus pushes back and goes, I'll do it. It's okay. I'll do that. It wasn't even that long ago they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Now they're embarrassed for Jesus. Does Jesus ever embarrass you? Oh, oh. They're probably feeling a little bit guilty. Apart from the embarrassment. Oh, we didn't do that. You need to know that the point that Jesus is making here is very telling. It's totally unexpected. Listen, for the kingdom of God to advance forcefully, it requires not only a king who is willing to serve, but followers who would step down from their selfish ambitions and self-centered attitude of prominence and serve each other. Hmm. When this takes place, when this is genuine and it takes place, the world can't help but notice, whoa, what is that? It's so counter-cultural to a world of greed and backstabbing and vengeance and hate. So counter-cultural that it's attractive. It's even infectious. It's a kingdom of people who are quick to serve and slow to judge, who, are, who readily put the needs of others above their own and who happily associate with those who are down rather than positioning themselves who want to be popular. While the disciples expected as they came into Jerusalem this flag of victory, every army has a flag. Jesus any minute is going to pull out this flag of victory and he's going to fly it and the takeover is going to begin. Rome will be banished. Herod will be dethroned. They saw a flag that was so unexpected they couldn't speak. It was a flag of sacrifice and service. Gene Wilkes said it so good. On that night, the banner of the kingdom was a towel stained with dirt. Wasn't a towel of victory, so they thought, but a towel of servitude. You know, I find it interesting that uh, the three disciples who were closest to Jesus were the very ones who had the, the most screwed up expectations of him. You know, it's possible to be close and miss the most important message here at Advent. We are here to serve. And to give our lives in such a way that people are ransomed and set free. Get out of your pity self. Get out of nobody does something for me. Get out of that. And see what you can do for him in serving others. 
And this can only happen if we do what the Word tells us to do in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude, your whole thinking, your, your, your mindset has to be the same as that of His. And you know what it takes to have that mindset for me? I've got to repent. I gotta repent that I want to be first. I gotta repent that I want to be on the top. I gotta repent that I want you to serve me. I gotta repent that I want you to bow when I walk by. I gotta repent that I'm more important than you. I gotta repent. Because I'm not here for you to serve my needs as a pastor. I am here to serve your needs as your shepherd. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.